Now, back to Sports 56 Mornings. Good morning! On Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Here once again, Greg Gaston and Eli Savoy. Welcome back, everyone. 9.03 the time. Final hour for us today here on Sports 56 Mornings. The President's Day edition of the program. Monday, February 19th, 2024. Greg Gaston and Zach Boyd. Eli will return tomorrow. Congratulations to our latest winner for the Cal Ripken Jr. tickets. We'll go see Cal speak on Thursday. Somebody got on my case for saying Sanantobia. I say Sanantobia, <laughs> but I guess you don't understand my accent. Uh, currently, it is 37 degrees. We're looking at 58 degrees, partly sunny skies for today. Tonight, a low of 37 degrees, and then tomorrow, 64 and sunny. Wednesday, 71 degrees. By the way, we'll give away another pair of tickets for Cal Ripken Jr. on tomorrow's show. I'm very pleased to be joined now by Matt Enfield, the sports reporter slash anchor from Action News 5, who will be my sideline reporter for Wednesday's Tigers game against Charlotte. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt underscore Enfield. You've heard him on the show before. Now he's sitting in for the entire hour. Good to have you, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. I told you, you are a fellow Northeast guy. You are one of the only people in Memphis I will get up at this hour to talk sports with. Thanks for having me here. And like you said, we're going to be very familiar with each other this week doing the game on Wednesday, which I'm looking forward to as well. Well, I appreciate you joining us. I'm going to have some more texts that continue to come in fast and furious about the Tigers. Obviously, that was going to be topic number one. Before I get to that, though, you said something interesting during the break. We were talking about the All-Star game. I I thought it was a joke. I mean, you're going over 200 points. Ridiculous. You brought up that the last few years they had the um, Elam ending. Elam ending. Yep. So they did get away from that. Do you know why? No, and I said the same thing last night because here's my thing. I've, I for a while been a, I've been okay with for a couple of quarters, especially the first half, it being a long range shooting contest, a dunk contest. That's fine. But what I like is when you get into the third and the fourth quarter. Money's on the line. We're going to get competitive. We're going to play defense. It's going to look like an actual game. Last night. You know, the West got down 25, and you got Damian Lillard and Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brown just raining threes, and all of a sudden, the West realizes, oh, it's getting late pretty early. But when you had the Elam ending, it just felt like there was more of a, it's called a target score, but it was something that motivated them. And I remember a couple years ago, I think it was maybe 2020, really competitive coming down to the end, and I, I don't know why they got away from that because it seemed to be successful to me. Bobby Mark says, give me USA versus World next February. Ooh, that could be fun. I think I might take World. Oh, right now I would take World. I, I, mean, I mean, what, are we talking probably three of the five best players in the world? Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, and then throw Luka in there? Like, <laughs> yeah, man, I would probably take the World in that game. I, it's, it's something that has to be done. Um, there's stories out there. Tim Bontemps wrote a story about Adam Silver, who spent, he said, months stressing about the All-Star game, needing to be better than last year. Ends up not being better, record-setting points. So, I, I, for me, just give me a little bit of defense. I know this is, you know, the Pro Bowl's an absolute joke. I mean, they're playing stupid uh, flag football and then tug-of-war stuff. Come yeah. on. But here, here is what I was talking about in break before we came on, though. I get why NFL players don't give a damn about the Pro Bowl because it is a physical violent sport with non-guaranteed contracts. I get that. That's fine. I'm not really sure if there's any way to bring back to the glory days of Sean Taylor lighting up a punter. I don't know if that's ever coming back. (laughs) But this, don't get me wrong, obviously they can get hurt, but it is much less risky in a game like this. So yeah, I would like to see it become a little more competitive again. 
All right, the big story around here is obviously the fall from the top for the Tigers and uh, not quite the top in the conference because they started out uh, – you know, a little bit slow, and then it got progressively worse. I'm talking about the top being 9-2 and two in the top 25, up to number 10 in the rankings, started out the season incredibly well. That has been the, the problem up to this point with Penny's teams, that they've gotten off to slow starts and had to battle back just to get to the tournament the last couple of years, but they were able to do so, playing their best basketball going into March. That doesn't appear that it will be the case. It's certainly not been the case over the last month or so. The team started out great. What has happened? What I know there are a lot of reasons why, but is there one or two that you point your finger to and say, I think it's because of that? I think the overarching theme to me, and I'm not sure if this is like a poorly kept secret, but like, you know, like obviously like, you know, we're, we're around the program a decent amount. I, I know that there is a feeling of, and it's kind of a portal product. These guys are a bunch of one year hired guns essentially. And when you have a group of one year hired guns, when things maybe aren't going the way they wanted to, things can go off the rails. Um, and this team has just, I, I the thing that, confuses me is you know Penny says that this was you know there were symptoms of the illness while they were rolling through the non-conference schedule but the symptoms weren't keeping them from winning and beating Texas A&M on the road Virginia uh, Clemson at home they were beating teams that are objectively better than a lot of the teams that they're losing to in conference play so yeah I mean this is a classic example of the sum of the parts is greater than the entire thing itself. So I, I, there's just no cohesion. Uh, there's no, it doesn't seem like there's will to play for one another, which is one of those like coaches' cliches. But, you know, when you care about your teammates and have their backs, it's going to lead to better results. And I mean, yesterday was, you know, here's the thing to me I didn't think that it would get more rock bottom than Rice just losing to a team of that caliber at home. And then yesterday happened, and I'm thinking, this is rock bottom. No? Wide open threes, dunks, not getting back on defense. Yeah, I would say rock bottom. In fact, that was the uh, the term I used, the terminology I used to open up the show. No question it's rock bottom. Now, I did say it, it, it could get a little worse internally if what we heard yesterday after the game, Penny, David Jones, not calling out players specifically, Yep. But I would bet the players know who they're talking about. Mm-hmm. If all of a sudden now you have a player maybe doesn't want to play anymore, wants to walk out on the team. I, I don't know how they're going to react, but that's possible. But as far as on the court right now, it is certainly rock bottom. Here's the thing, though. And I said this while they're on the four-game losing streak. I said this when they looked like they were getting things back on track with the three-game winning streak. And I'll say it again now after this dismal last week. I will not be completely out on this team until they lose in the conference tournament because as bad as it's been for the last month, they are absolutely talented enough to go to Fort Worth next month and win four games. Now, do I think it's likely right now? No. Uh, And there's nothing to indicate that a turnaround of that magnitude is coming, but they are certainly talented enough to go and do that. Um, So until they lose in a conference tournament, I will not be completely out on them, but... 
Yeah, yesterday was here, here they with yesterday. Yesterday they were a good offensive team. They shot forty eight percent from the field. They were forty five percent from three. It's not offense. And they lost by twenty seven. It's not the <laughs> offense. Correct. They've had a couple of bad games, but it's the defense. They they don't understand what he's teaching them. I've been to practices. They don't get it. He has to scrap it. And I know it's late, but I think you have to do something right now that you don't want to do. And that's you have to play zone. Now you play man, and then you put some zone in. You go back to man. You But this help defense coming over, doubling guys, leaving guys open is not working. It's not working. You can't continue to hammer your head into a wall and hope that it'll change because it's not going to change. It's been horrible. They're without their best perimeter defender in Caleb Mills. That's really where they miss Mills. And other guys who are not putting the effort in there, they're on the floor. Again, we don't know which exact players he's talking about, but there are players, obviously. So what can they do? They have to do something. Don't they have to do something drastic to change things up? Because I don't know how you get back to where they once were. I think that Genie's out of the bottle. Yeah, and I mean, I think we saw signs of drastic late yesterday. I don't know if it's going to carry over to Wednesday night against Charlotte, but... I mean, when you're playing Joe Cooper, a walk-on from Olive Branch, who was at Northwest Mississippi Community College last year, where you're putting him in the game with 11 minutes left just because you have belief that he is going to play harder than basically everyone else who has been on the floor the rest of the day, that says something, does it not? Carl Sherrod I mean, Carl's played a little bit this year, but Petty put Carl in the game with 11 minutes left yesterday purely because he knew he would give energy and effort. And I mean, like, you know, the talk of... Shortening rotations is obviously, you know, you've, you've been covering Penny and the Tigers longer than I have, but I know that's been a constant discussion. It's not happening. For years now, probably not, but maybe this is the team that spurs something. Maybe, and, you know, here, here's the thing. We played 11 guys in the first seven <laughs> I know, minutes I know, yesterday. I know, I know. And, and it's weird, too, because, like, after the Wichita game where they, you know, they closed they closed the game on the big run, uh, basically playing one lineup. What was it? Javon, uh, David Jones, Jaquan, Jordan, Tomlin, I think, down the stretch. You're like, okay, you found a five that works and works really well. The goal now should be to play them as much as possible. And I think for he did that for a little bit, and then it's kind of gone back to these kind of frenetic substitutions. So, it, yeah, I mean, I think that at a certain point, the thing is, who do you bench? Like, who do you... Uh, to me, Jurassic is not playing guys entirely. Well, he tried to do that for a second with Quinterly. He didn't start him the one game, Yep. remember? Yep. And then he still played 30 minutes. The problem I think they have with that is that I don't... And, you know, I, I, I saw someone talk about Javon's effort yesterday, and there were certainly some moments where it looked a little... Eh, it wasn't a great look, to say the least. Um, if you take Javon out, who do you have? I, you know, like, like Jalen Young is a great kind of spark plug defender guy, but I, the from what I've seen this year, I don't know that he's going to be the offensive initiator that you need out of that spot. He's coming off an injury, number one. Number two, he just played a, a minute or so last game. I think you're right. I, I expected more from Jalen Young. I think he's been a little bit of a disappointment. And as far as Joe Cooper, A for effort, Joe Cooper, I bet you – 90% of the people out there had to scurry to the Go Tigers Go website <laughs> to look up the roster to figure out who the hell this guy is. Actually, I, I did. Uh, I told you before, I do a little bit of play-by-play for um, Northwest Mississippi Community College. So I did a couple of his games last year, and he was good. I mean, I, I, I you know, you see him in that setting, he's a good player. Um, 
But yeah, yeah but, I, but I, but you, knew, you knew he was on the team, but other people knew right, 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 right. And and this is not you know respectfully Joe Cooper, who has earned his way into the walk on sure. status and on the roster. But you know he's not someone that you think should be playing with eleven minutes left in a conference game. Somebody texted and said, why do you think Alabama didn't complain when their point guard transferred to Memphis? Remember that whole deal with Nate yeah. Oates and the things he had to say? I, I, I guess I just kind of took that at, at the time as, you know, Bama can get other great players as well. So maybe it was kind of just one of those things where it's like, okay, if he's going to leave, we'll replace him, no problem. But... Yeah, uh, Javon, 4 of 11 yesterday. A little bit of lackluster effort defensively, to say the least. It was not his best performance, to say the least. Uh, Reggie says, this coach is so stubborn. After the season, we'll not only have a turnover of players, but of coaches as well. Again, as we've seen over his tenure. So here's, I I was talking about this with uh, Griffin Demeray, who's our new sports news hybrid at Action News 5. We were talking about this last night. I think that there is kind of an aspect in the portal era, where the combination of players year to year can be so volatile that it really kind of depends on you know how well the group gels in the chemistry one year, and it might work great one year. Like last year's group, for example, I think you would call that a success. Like obviously the ending was very disappointing, yes. but you are probably one timeout that should have been granted away from going to the Sweet Sixteen. Probably because I mean they would if they, if they beat FAU they probably I know I know it's a what if game o- overall I think the process of last year's team it was, was a good su- season was successful it was yeah, a good yeah like there was no talk about this right. I, I I think that beyond Kendrick and DeAndre on last year's team they lacked a little bit of high end talent but overall it was a good season and a successful process because guys knew their roles right correct and so this is where it, where it's interesting to me because I think you looked at this year's team and you're like all right man they got all these guys that can get theirs at any given moment but we also knew we we had plenty of this discussions about how do you soothe the egos how do you make sure everyone falls in line and ultimately that's been the biggest problem where last year you had a 1a alpha kendrick davis you had honestly a 1b in deandre yes. williams especially you know down the stretch last season deandre is playing incredible 1A, basketball. 1B, I'd, i would agree and then you got you know I mean, these guys weren't spectacular but you know you had your keontae kennedys and elijah mccaddens and whatnot that fell in line fell you know played their role didn't complain you know they could score five points and it wasn't a problem and it seemed to work out fine. So I, I'm curious what they know, and you know too. Petty's not dumb. It's good. This is going to change how he builds a roster. Is it possible that we've overvalued the talent on this year's team? On, on, on an individual level? Yeah. Look, Jordan Brown, he did not live up to expectations. No. And Jordan Brown, I think, is, is a style problem. Um, Jaquan I, Walton has not been the guy. Jaquan I mean, is one because, you know, man, you were there. You called uh, the Jackson State game, the opening game of the season. Man, Jaquan came out with his hair on fire. You're looking at this like, okay, this might really be the guy this year. And it's been, you know, I, I talked with Jaquan on the, on the show maybe a month ago. And I know that he's kind of had this aspect in his mind of he's kind of had to step up in Caleb Mills' role defensively. But... You know, he only played 11 minutes yesterday. He was 0-3 from the field. I think that kind of says something about where Penny thinks he's at, no? It says something. I mean, obviously a guy who uh, high, had high expectations, and they had high expectations about him, he has really struggled with his shot. But he came from Wichita State where he was a really, really good player. David Jones was a good player at St. John's. He wasn't a great player at St. John's. He has blossomed, right? Um, you have Quinterly. Again, we just talked about him. Nate Oates didn't really mind if he had left the team. He's good. 
I mean, he was really good, wasn't he? The NCAA, I mean, the SEC, yeah, SEC tournament, tournament MVP. MVP. Yeah. So he he was really good coming. But you look, at, we talk about how deep this team is. I mean, with all due respect, Jaden Hardaway's a you know a solid four year player. He's like second guy off the bench or first guy off the bench. Mm-hmm. It's not as deep as we think it is. And then of course you have Malco. Luckily, Malco. And his knees are the healthiest they have been in his five years. So he has actually given them some really good games. He's had some bad games, but he's given them some good. T- but it really, when you think about it, it's it's not this amount of talent that we thought it would be. But when you put that into the American Conference, yep. either we completely downplayed this conference altogether, of that, that it was void of talent, or this is an unbelievable um, jump up in conference play for all these schools, including your school, where you went to and graduated from, USF, yep. that it seemed like that 20-point comeback win over Memphis was what spurred them on because they were terrible during the non-conference yep. portion of your schedule. So I don't know. This is a weird year where Memphis was really good at the beginning. Now they're bad. Other teams have stepped up. I have no idea what the hell's going on. You know, I was going to say, you were naming the talent on, on the roster. If they can manage to get this thing turned around, which is an enormous if, but you know I think the second best player on the team will be? Naquan Tomlin. Because you're starting to see it more and more with him. And I'm going to defend him a little bit because I think that you know people pointed to, well, there's this common denominator of you know everything was good in non-conference. He showed up for the Vanderbilt game and things went downhill. Yeah. And I, I just don't buy into that it's at all, really. Yeah, I, I don't buy into it all because I think that, um, you know, like these guys are open about it now. Like there were signs of leaking oil behind the scenes before that. And then you get in the non-conference and they start taking these teams not seriously enough. And all of a sudden you are now sitting here. What are they? Are they seventh in the conference? Seventh or eighth? It's crazy. Like, imagine if we would have said that at the beginning of the year, that we are in the third week of February and they are outside the top five of the conference. They are tied right now with North Texas and East Carolina. Crazy. Believe it or not, North Texas has the nod because they beat them. Yep. They still got to go to Greenville. Tough place to play, right? It, it's tough. It's tough the way the Tigers are playing right now. Nope. Probably be the underdog in that game. But. I wanted to, you brought up Tomlin, and yeah, I, I think that's just a weird coincidence. Tomlin has played pretty well for the most part. He had a couple of games he fouled out and didn't do much, but for the most part, he's played well. I'm looking at SMU. I'm looking at the rebounders. Okay, I won't oh, even give you, I won't even give you the names. Okay, eight three five four five two three four two. Right down the line, we just talked about Tomlin. He's a big guy, 29 minutes, three rebounds. Yep. Okay, um, you had. Nick Jordan, 19 minutes, big guy, zero rebounds. Jordan Brown, he only played nearly six minutes, but he had no rebounds. Malco got five in 16 minutes, so not too bad. Now, you give credit to Jones because he's going in there and getting rebounds. But for the most part, to me, when I watch the game, because they have that that trap defense, that help defense, lead guys open, guys are taking threes, the opponent knows where the ball is going to – they know where that ball is coming off the rim. Memphis doesn't even look in the air. They don't know where the ball is well, most of the time. I think they're lost out there where to rebound, where to be in position, and how to rebound the basketball for the most part. Well, and you hit on the trapping defense. Think about how often you see big guys getting dragged out to the perimeter. 
and they're away from the rim. And then you look at the rebounding numbers and the offensive rebounds that they gave up yesterday. And honestly, I, I was looking at the stats yesterday. SMU, it ended up being 11-17. to 17, And I would be curious how much of Memphis's offensive rebounds came in garbage time or late in the game. Because, I mean, they just got absolutely slaughtered on the offensive glass in the first half. And yeah, I, it's, I think it's got to be partially scheme. I think it's got to be partially... Some guys, uh, for lack of a better term, don't have that dog in them. Right? Uh, yeah, it's it's a mess there. When you give up that many second chance points and offensive rebounds, I mean, there's there's a big problem. Twenty three ten second chance points in favor of SMU in the paint. Memphis was outscored 48-32. All right, we need to take a break. We'll come back. We're going to switch gears. We're going to talk to the author of the new book, Running Redbirds, about the world champion 82 Cardinals. I know there's a ton of Cardinals fans out there. He is Eric Vickery. He will join us next. I do want to tell you folks about one of our great sponsors. That's All-Star Chevrolet and Olive Branch. If you're ready for a new Silverado, they have them right there in Olive Branch at All-Star Chevy. Financing down to 2.9 for 72 months or up to 5,000 cash. Plus, make no payments for 90 days. The new Silverados, the Equinox, the Trailblazers, the Tahoes. You're going to love all these vehicles, and you're going to love seeing this all-star lot and showroom loaded up again. You want pre-owned? Everything you want is here. Ram trucks, Jeeps, Nissan Rogues, the Traverse with that third-row seating. Military, teachers, college students, healthcare workers, listen up. You get an extra $500 bonus when you purchase a vehicle from All-Star Chevrolet. And at All-Star Chevy, they have everything you're looking for. And if it's not there, Jeff or Kevin, they promise they're going to find it for you. Remember, it's not South Haven, not Mount Moriah, not Bartlett or Collierville. It's got to be Olive Branch. Come on out to All-Star Chevy and Olive Branch today or go to allstarautogroup.com. You're tuned in to Sports 56 Mornings with Greg and Eli on Real Sports Talk, Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Add a little fun to your lunch break. Join Johnny Radio for Sports 56 Happy Hour from 11 to 1 every weekday on Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Now back to Sports 56 Mornings. Good morning. On Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Here once again, Greg Gaston and Eli Savoy. Welcome back, everyone. 928 is the time. We're going to talk a little Cardinals here in just a moment. In the meantime, Matt Infield joining me for this final hour from Action News 5. You see him anchoring on weekends, reporting during the week. By the way, uh, for those who don't know, your background and, and who are the teams that you rooted for as a kid? So, actually, it's funny, though, for the conversation we're getting ready to have, uh, the first team I ever fell in love with was actually the St. Louis Cardinals. I grew up on Long Island, just outside New York City, but the first athlete I ever idolized was Mark McGuire. Uh, when I was like four or five years old, right in the middle, like summer 98 and even going to 99. Um, gravitated towards him, and then in 2001, a guy named Albert Poole shows up, and Albert Pools becomes my favorite athlete ever. So even when he left the Cardinals at first after the 2011 World Championship, I mean, you know, I was all in at that point. That's been my favorite team my entire life. Uh, the rest of my teams are unfortunately all of these sad New York teams. Although my Knicks, <laughs> my Knicks been pretty good, really good this year, pretty competent the last couple of years. Uh, long-suffering Jets fan. Uh, hopefully. 
Aaron's uh, Rodgers season lasts more than four plays next year. Maybe we can get that thing turned around. And then not a huge hockey fan, but if I have a hockey team, it is the Islanders. So all New York except for the Cardinals. And I'm very thankful to be a Cardinals fan because they've saved me from... If I was a Cardinals fan, I would have been a Mets fan because my dad's a Mets fan. And Mets, Jets, Knicks is a big three of misery. <laughs> I hate that you're dealing with that, but you are dealing with uh, the Cardinals here in St. Louis, uh, in Memphis, yep. uh, in St. Louis up the road, so it's perfect for you yep. with the Redbirds here, the AAA team. And this is very weird because I had asked you to come on the show well before I knew about our next guest, who just happened to write a book about the Cardinals, so it makes sense yep. now you're here to be able to ask Eric some questions as well. But his name is Eric Vickery. He's an author, and he has written a book called Running Redbirds, the world champion 82 St. Louis Cardinals. There are a lot of fans out here in the Memphis area that are big fans of the Cardinals like yourself, but know the Cardinals from that 1982 world championship. You can follow Eric on Twitter at Eric underscore Vickery. He has another book that will be coming out in April. We'll talk to him about that as well, but very pleased to be joined by Eric right now on Sports 56 Mornings. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so first of all, as I ask every author that comes on the show, the obligated question, uh, why this book, why the 82 Cardinals, and why now? Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Alton, Illinois, about 20 miles from St. Louis, uh, and fell in love with baseball in the mid to late 80s, watching uh, Whitey Ball, guys like Vince Coleman, Ozzy Smith, uh, Willie McGee, Tom Herr, uh, kind of fell in love with that style of baseball. And so uh, as I was looking to uh, write a book, I'd done some writing with the Society for American Baseball Research, I honed in on the 82 season because it was really the pinnacle of that um, decade of excellence for the Cardinals and uh, kind of a bygone era uh, in terms of the style of play. So it was really fun to go back and really dig into that season. Whitey Ball, for those who don't know, get runners on base, steal bases, run the bases, knock them in with singles and doubles. Not much of a power team. In fact, Eric, you talk about some of those numbers. For those who don't know, just how inept was that 82 Cardinals team if you want to I'm going to use that term from hitting uh, hitting the long ball yeah yeah they hit 67 home runs as a team that season which is hard to fathom these days wow uh, and part of that had to do with the dimensions of Bush Stadium at the time it was 414 feet to center field uh, 383 feet to the gap so it took a, a big uh, sh shot to hit, hit a ball out of the stadium so uh, Whitey recognized that and he tailored his roster to fit the ballpark Eric, I was going to mention the 67 home runs as a team the entire season, which is wild. I mean, they had two guys with double digits, and the second leading one was Daryl Porter with 12. It's a wild thing to That's think crazy. about now. <laughs> and if you can, talk about the style clash in the World Series because they ended up beating the Milwaukee Brewers who were in the American League at the time in a seven-game series. The Brewers led baseball in home runs that season. Their top two home run hitters had more home runs than the Cardinals' entire team combined. So just that clash of styles. Dig into that, if you will. Oh, yeah. It was a truly a David versus Goliath uh, matchup in the World Series. Yeah, the Brewers were up and down the lineup, just uh, a potent team. They had uh, Younts, Molitor, and Cecil Cooper, uh, the first three hitters in the order, all had over 200 hits. You had uh, Gorman Thomas, Oglavy, uh, Ted Simmons, a former Cardinal in the middle of the order. Uh, and those, those six were just a yeah, tremendous one through six. And then even the number nine hitter, Gantner, had an average of over 290. So there were no easy outs in that lineup. So who did you get a chance to talk to when doing the research for the book? 
So I had the opportunity to interview a, a few of the uh, the Cardinals. I talked to Dane Orge uh, and Mike Ramsey, who were two uh, key figures off the bench for that team. Talked to uh, Jeff Keener, one of the relief pitchers, and also got some um, input from uh, some of the opposing uh, players, guys like Warren Cromarty, uh, uh, Barry Foote, who caught Bruce Suter uh, with the Cubs. So he kind of uh, told me about you know, what it was like to catch Suter, um, Kind of described the movement of his uh, famous split-fingered fastball. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting makeup that team was. You had the great Keith Hernandez who would go on to the Mets and unfortunately ran into some uh, some problems, obviously, with drugs. You had Daryl Porter who had his issues and no longer with us. You had Hall of Famers like Bruce Suter and Jim Cott towards, I guess, the end of his career. The makeup of that team was quite interesting. It sure was, yeah. They had a real mix of veterans and also rookies. The the guys that came up uh, from Louisville that year uh, really had a, a a big impact on the team. Guys like Willie McGee, yeah, who they de- debuted uh, in May of that year, and then uh, a couple of pitchers, John Super and Dave LaPointe, came up and really helped solidify the. Um, back end of the starting rotation. So I was reading about this this team last night a little bit, and I found it interesting. There's a quote from Whitey Herzog where he said, Bruce Suter was really the one who turned this thing around, which is a really interesting quote about a closer. Obviously, Bruce Suter is a Hall of Famer, one of the best closers of all time, but what did you gather about the impact that he had and his role in getting it turned around as a closer? Yeah, I think Whitey, he had managed the Royals the Cardinals and took the team to uh, three straight division titles, but uh, in each of those seasons, uh, the, the bullpen kind of let let him down uh, in the uh, playoffs against the Yankees. So he, when he vowed that when he was, uh, got his next job, he was going to make sure that he got a closer that he could rely on, and Bruce Sutter was at the top of his list. Um, so he really came in, uh, in when he joined the team in '81 and uh, was really the stopper. Uh, and they, they weren't afraid to bring him in in the 7th uh, or 8th inning back in those days. So he got a lot of 7 or 8 out uh, saves uh, and really just, yeah, shut down the those late innings. When you're a team that's going to scratch out runs like they did playing Whitey Ball, you would think that you would have this unbelievable pitching staff like the Orioles from 71 or something like that. But it was a good staff. It wasn't a great staff, but it had guys that really, really stepped up. Joaquin Andujar was one of kind of the unsung heroes on that pitching staff. Oh, yeah, he sure was. Yeah, he was turned out to be the ace of the staff, which, you know, to that point in his career, he had lar- largely been a, a journeyman pitcher. Right. He started with the Reds, uh, had a little bit of success with the Astros, but it really was uh, after joining the Cardinals and under the tutelage of uh, pitching coach Hub Kittle that he really uh, kind of came into his own. Uh, and turned out to be the ace of the staff. But, yeah, they had a really interesting, um, uh, if you look at the numbers, they were last in the NL in uh, strikeout rate that year, 4.2 strikeouts per nine innings. So they hmm. they threw a lot of strikes and uh, let the defense do the rest. This is a power error. That team was the opposite of that. I wanted to ask about, you mentioned a couple names before. You know, for me, I never watched Ozzie Smith live because I'm a little too young for that. But when I think of all-time great defenders in the sport, Ozzie Smith, to me, is the gold standard. I grew up in New York. I know about Keith Hernandez and his prowess at first base. How do you put in the words just how great that infield defense in particular led by those two was? Yeah, it, it, yeah. like you said, it's really hard to put into words how great Ozzie Smith was. Um, I mean, you just have to go back and watch some of the amazing 
um, plays that he made, you know, diving uh, in either direction, jumping over runners as they were barreling into second base. Uh, and, yeah, he he was the gold standard for sure. And uh, I should mention Tom Herr at mm-hmm. second base and uh, Ken Oberfill at third, uh, kind of around the infield, they were um, top-notch. Well, as you said, they they handed it over to the the infield and the outfield to make defensive plays with that pitching staff, not an overpowering pitching staff, and that's certainly what they did. Again, the name of the book is The Running Redbirds, the world champion 1982 St. Louis Cardinals. Eric Vickery is the author, joining us here on Sports 56 Mornings. Is there something that, that you learned that you were kind of shocked about or something that just, wow, I, you know, I got to put that in the book? Yeah, a couple things come to mind there. I, I think you know the team was did not have any superstars. You know, they, they did have Ozzy and, and Bruce Suter, who are Hall of Fame players, but um, just in terms of the, they didn't they didn't have any MVP level players like Dale Murphy or Robin Yount. Uh, it was really a, uh, a team effort, one through twenty five uh, guys stepping up at different points of the season, like Glenn Brummer feeling home to win a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Ramsey filling in for Ozzie Smith when he was out. Uh, Dane Orge coming up huge in the World Series, uh, going nine for seventeen. Um, Jim Cott, forty-two-year-old uh, uh, lefty coming out of the bullpen. Um, yeah, just it was truly a team effort. Um, one through twenty-five, they did um, to, to reach the uh, the uh, World Series that year. The other thing that stands out is how good their their pitching was down the uh, stretch. In September, they had a 2.48 ERA, while the uh, offense was really struggling. The offense only hit 237 uh, in September in the last few games of uh, October. So, yeah, the uh, pitching staff, uh, you know, the team is known for its speed, but it's really the uh, uh, starting pitching and and Suter at the end of the bullpen that kind of uh, pushed the team over the top and got them into the playoffs. Was it a shock that they won it all that year? I think it was. Um, you know, they had they had a good eighty-one season. They had actually the best record in the division, but because of the split season format from the strike, um, you know, didn't reach the playoffs that year. Um, they they were certainly trending up, but I don't think anyone, um, you know, the Expos were actually the, the favorite team to win the uh, division that year. They were they were pretty stacked with guys like Gary Carter, Andre mm-hmm. Dawson, Tim Raines. Um, so I think the Cardinals were a bit of a surprise that they won the division. And then, you know, on paper, they certainly um, were the uh, underdog against the Brewers. So I, I think it did surprise a lot of people that they were able to uh, pull it off. Kind of in that same vein, do you feel like that team is kind of the forgotten Cardinals championship team? Because you go back to when they were winning world championships in the 20s, there was always a big name that was really identifiable, identifiable with them. Rogers Hornsby, you got Stan Musial in the 40s, you got Bob Gibson in the 60s, 2000s, you got Albert Pools. This team, it's kind of like, yeah, they won the World Series, but it doesn't feel like it has as much fanfare around it. That's a great point, yeah. If you look at the roster, you're like, wow, how did, how did this team pull it off? It's right. not a lot of uh, a big names. No, certainly, you know, a few Hall of Famers, but not, not those guys like, like Albert Pujols, Sam Usual, and Bob Gibson, who are some you know some of the great players to ever play the game. Uh, yeah, so I think it is a rather unsung uh, team in Cardinals history for sure. Yeah, and, and guys like Ozzy Smith, they they were just getting going. Jim Cobb was already forty two, and he would eventually get into the Hall of Fame, I think, from the Veterans Committee. But guys were still yeah. just getting adjusted, getting their 
it wasn't like they were a finished uh, product yet. So uh, a lot different than some of the championship teams you see. More on the lines of what the Mets were in 69. The Mets, we, it was really yep. what Seaver was just getting going, but you had the guys like Shamsky and Cleon Jones and Tommy Agee. They weren't household names, and they went out there and, and shocked the world. Exactly. And I, I would even argue that the 85 and 87 Cardinal teams were, were probably uh, better overall, well-rounded team uh, compared to the 82 team. Willie McGee, that was his rookie year, too, and obviously he became a central figure in Cardinals history, especially in the 80s, but did his impact kind of shock people? Totally, yeah. He was you know, kind of a under-the-radar acquisition from the Yankees uh, by the Cardinals that year. They traded a um, middling pitcher named Bob Sykes uh, for uh, McGee, who had never uh, gotten past double-A with the Yankees. He was just blocked by a bunch of uh, veterans and a pretty stacked farm system, so um, he didn't even start off the season, you know, with the Cardinals big league club started at triple a, but they had a couple injuries early on and he came up, um, and initially was looked at as a short-term replacement. He was going to be, you know, filling in for David green for a couple weeks and then going back down, but he played so well that he stuck with the team and then ended up having, uh, you know, breakout, uh, game three of the world series where he robbed a home run and hit two home runs of his own to, uh, to win the game. So Eric will be in Blytheville on Thursday doing a book signing. Give everybody the details. Yeah, I'll be there uh, Thursday from 4 to 6 at Blytheville uh, uh, Book Company. So I'd love to uh, to meet some Cardinal fans and uh, and sign some books. And uh, also in Memphis, the uh, Novel Bookstore uh, is carrying the book. Uh, if you're looking for it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Novel, and that's the, that's the only way you can get the book is, is through the bookstores, or can you get it... Uh... You know, online and things of that nature. Yeah, anywhere online, uh, on, online sellers would have it too. But yeah, uh, as far as the independent stores and um, locally, those are the two. And then real quick, you got another book coming out in April, Season of Shattered Dreams. What's that about? I do, yeah. So uh, uh, I actually live in Washington State now, and I heard about this story a few years ago. Uh, the 1946 Spokane Indians uh, minor league team was involved in a uh, bus crash in the um, Cascade Mountains. Uh, and it killed nine players, and it, to this day, it's the uh, deadliest tragedy in the history of uh, American sports. So, um, as I kind of researched and uh, learned more about this story, it, it's truly a fascinating uh, tale in terms of the. Uh, you know, it happened right after World War II. Uh, the accident involved uh, a couple of former Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, one guy who's considered uh, the top prospect on the West Coast, Dick Pachetti. Um, yeah, so uh, really looking forward to bringing that story to light. Yeah, we're looking forward to that coming out in April. We'll get you back on to talk about that book at the time. But again, the book this time around is Running Redbirds, the world champion 82 St. Louis Cardinals. Go over to Novel or go online and pick one up today. Eric, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much and uh, continued success. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate Eric joining us here on the program. Appreciate Town Village Audubon Park, one of our terrific sponsors at 950 Cherry Road, just off Park Avenue. Senior living in today's world, offering more options to fit your needs more than ever before. They are dedicated to the long-term satisfaction and the quality of life for their residents. All they ask is that you're 55 years of age or older. Phone number is 901-537-0002. Give them a call, set up a tour today, or go online to townvillageaudubonpark.com. Independent living, short-term respite stay available, monthly options, great events scheduled with activities galore, all the modern amenities you want, including... Apartments that are full uh, full with kitchen, washer, dryer, resort-style dining with multiple venues, bi-weekly housekeeping, 
outpatient therapy, and then a community social area that includes a fitness center, home theater, game rooms, indoor pool, whirlpool, 24-hour pantry, a beauty salon, library, commuter, commu, uh, excuse me, computer center, and so much more, plus five landscape courtyards, dog park, and gated parking. It is Town Village Ottoman Park, 950 Cherry Road, just off Park Avenue in the heart of East Memphis, 901-537-0002 or online at townvillageautobanpark.com. We're coming back with our final segment here on Sports 56 Mornings with Greg and Eli. Matt Infield pinch hitting this final hour. This is Real Sports Talk, Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. You already know you can listen to Sports 56 anywhere with the Sports 56 app or at sports56whbq.com. But you can also watch us daily with live video of all of our shows on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Now back to Sports 56 Mornings. Good morning. On Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Here once again, Greg Gaston and Eli Savoy. Welcome back, everybody. Happy President's Day. I neglected to mention this in hour two because on Mondays and Fridays in hour two, our friends at Gaddis Jewelers bring you the Memphis sports fact. Did you know, and you should know this if you follow local sports, the Memphis Tigers dropped two of three in their opening baseball series at Jacksonville State. The Matt Reiser era is underway. The Tigers led all three games, probably should have won all three games and swept Jacksonville State. But they lose two in extra innings. The Tigers return to work tomorrow. They'll play at Little Rock. They had a big lead yesterday. Yesterday, up 9-2, bottom 8. They give up 11 runs and allow a walk-off grand slam in the bottom of the 10th. So, like you said, you know they're competitive all weekend. Probably should have at least won two games. But I saw Matt Reiser say, got to learn how to finish. Yeah, sometimes those middle late relievers, you know, usually have the closer, but it's those sixth, seventh, eighth inning guys. They got to be sharp. If they struggle, you're going to struggle. That's so important in college baseball. Speaking of struggling, the Tigers, they've lost six of nine. They will play Wednesday. We'll be on that call. You'll be our sideline reporter for our final ESPN Plus game. Do you think Memphis will be a favorite or an underdog in that one Wednesday? Ooh, it's kind of weird to say that, right? But at FedEx Forum, the way it's going, Charlotte's second I, in the American. I'll say this, you know, like coming off the four game losing streak, they were at home against Wichita, and they were like ten and a half point favorites, which was a crazy number to me, given how they were playing. Wichita State obviously easily covered. You know, Memphis won the game. Uh, if I were to put my bookmaker cap on, I would say Memphis. Two or three point favorites, right? You you kind of live in that world a little bit. Does that sound about right? I, I think it sounds right, but man, they lost by ten at North Texas. Lost by twenty seven. I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying I would take that with any confidence, but I, if I had to guess, that is what around what the line would be. Charlotte is eleven and two in the conference, but away from home, they are just four and five they're 12 and one at home so yeah memphis probably will be the slight favorite i think you're right about that then sunday they host florida atlantic maybe a lot will depend on what happens wednesday if they can figure it out but i was thinking at first going into texas going into those two games man you can win those two games and charlotte it's going to be probably close to a sellout for florida atlantic it's huge now i just don't know Here's here's the thing with FAU too, and this is kind of you know just a byproduct of building your team through the portal, which might be a necessary evil. 
But how many guys on this year's team are really going to get up for the FAU game? How many guys on this team felt the pain of losing that NCAA tournament game last year? And maybe some of these guys will will get up because FAU has kind of been, you know, even when we thought Memphis was a really good team, FAU was always kind of the team that was getting more credit. But, you know, you've got Malco and Jaden, and no one else on the team knew what it was like to lose right. them last March. Right. And let's see where they are mentally, because right now I'd have to think it's going to be very hard for them to bounce back after not only the loss, the humiliation of getting destroyed by that team, but then everything that was said afterwards. We are not privy to that information, what's going to happen in practice leading up to the Charlotte game, how they're going to perform on Wednesday and then on Sunday. But where are some of these guys mentally? Because, as I mentioned, even though names were not named by Penny and David Jones, I guarantee you guys know exactly that they're talking about me or they're talking about me and this guy because you can eliminate some people. And how do you react? Do you turn around and say, all right, you know what? They're calling me out. I'm going to step up. You watch the rest of the way. I'm going to step up. Or are they just going to sulk? Are they going to get mad? So I, I just don't know what to expect anymore with these Tigers teams. You were here. I was not here. I came right after this. How reminiscent... It was a little bit different because it was in a tunnel at Moody Coliseum and not at the podium at FedEx Four. But how reminiscent was yesterday compared to stupid effing questions from a couple of years ago? <laughs> I guess similar. Well, but, but that turned that helped turn that season around. Did it not a couple of years ago, or at least after that, they got things going the right direction and made the NCAA tournament. This is to me kind of petty. This is Penny pushing all his chips to the center of the table and saying, "Okay, this is the fork of the road. Either we're going to really get our stuff together and go on a run from here." Or the team's just going to collapse. Yeah, but he's 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 tried that before in the sense of calling out players without naming names, but calling out the team as a unit, talking about selfishness. I mean, he's done an awful lot of that. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, I haven't really responded well to it. Yeah, I, I think that what was probably before this. I mean, the most publicly he called the team out was probably after the USF loss when he was like, "There's everyone's talking the huddle and instead of focusing on the other team, we're trying to square things up." Like I thought that was a very yes. telling quote. But yesterday he kind of took it to another level, I'd he, say. He did take it to another level. You were asking about where they are in the standings. So right now you have South Florida at 12 and 1. Charlotte comes in, they're 11 and 2. Florida Atlantic and SMU are 10 and 3. You go down to fifth place, that's UAB 9 and 3. Have a win over Memphis. Still have to play him again here in Memphis. Then you tied for sixth. It's North Texas, Memphis, and East Carolina, as I said. North Texas gets the nod, having yep. beaten Memphis. At, so right now, Memphis technically is in seventh. How many? Um, at what seed do they have to play four games instead of three at the AAC tournament? It's what the top. What is it? The bottom two play the first. Yeah, the first the first day. day. And then I think it would be what the top four will avoid that second day. It's, it's crazy they're to gonna, think about. They're even in that conversation. They're going to have to win what four games yeah. right in four days, which is tough. I, I, tough. I, I without I, without looking at the history, I would venture to guess that no team has won that tournament having to play four games. That particular tournament, no. But do you remember Connecticut when they rolled through the Big East and won five and five nights? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then went on. Did they win a national championship? Was that 2011, that 2011 with uh, Cardiac Kemba? Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, it was 2011. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. That was an incredible team. By the way, in the SEC, didn't have a lot of time to talk about them. But f- Kentucky, bouncing back and winning at Auburn yep. by 11. And then Cal, here comes Cal. Guns a-blazing. Cal, Cal's kind of standing up for his players in the same way Penny did a couple weeks ago, except Cal... Yeah, it, except, it, it, nobody, except nobody was calling out Cal's Yeah, it was, everyone was calling out Cal. <laughs> Ole Miss 
Had to win. Looked like it was uh, a dire situation at the Pavilion, but rallied to beat Missouri 79-76. Mississippi State, same type of deal. Beat Arkansas. That would have been a bad loss. 71-67. The latest bracketology from Jerry Palm comes out today. I think Lenardi's will come out tomorrow. You'll have the top 25 poll come out today as well. It'll be interesting to see where these teams are. Bama still leading the SEC at 10-2. Tennessee second at 9 and three. That's going to do it for us. Matt, great job. Thanks for sitting in. Man, and have you back anytime. This is a lot of fun. Appreciate it. We got him up early, and uh, yes, he, sir. Didn't, he didn't mind that whatsoever. We want to thank both Matt, Tim Buckley, and Eric Vickery for joining us on the program today. Tomorrow, Eli rejoins me starting bright and early at 7 a.m. Jeff Crane from the University of Memphis will join us. We'll have our weekly Rhodes segment, Humdinger's Trivia, and we'll give away another pair of tickets to go see Cal Ripken. Junior. Wolo and Friends on Sports 56 is next. Guess what? Dave Wolotion in studio for the first time in, I don't know, a year and a half. For Eli Savoy, for Zach Boyd, for Matt Infield, I'm Greg Gaston. Have a great day, everyone. Don't stop believing.